0: Valerie is my mother's name. Rush is for white suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My
1: tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey there, this is the soundtrack series. Stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. Coming up, Stage actor Matthew Trumbull tells us his personal memories of Jimmy Hootmacher, the crazy old man of his hometown, who is rumored to be the Mr. Jimmy in the second verse of You Can't Always Get What You Want.
0: I I leaned over to Bonnie in Bell Choir, and I said, why is Mr. Jimmy crazy? And she said, oh, well, you know, he watched his sister burn alive in a house fire when he was your age. And then she fell back asleep.
1: But first, Baby,
0: if you wondered,
1: wondered whatever became of me. I'm on the air in Cincinnati. Yes, I'm talking about this. For all the topical things I could talk about. How ridiculous title is and I've never been happier about the implosion of something. Britney Spears cover of Tom's Diner. Amy Schumer's Milk Milk Lemonade video, I'm still gonna talk about a sitcom that ran from 1978 to 1982. You'll live. It actually, though, is topical, sort of. My birthday was last week, And in addition to taking me to see the Bjork retrospective at the MoMA sidebar, amazing, by the way, the song lines part of it where you you'd go through the guided tour of of some of her notes and her costumes that gets jammed up a little bit as you walk through it to the timed audio because the space is really small and they want you to sit and experience things for longer than the audio is talking but then people get jammed up so everything else unreal she is not of this world and i'd forgotten how much i love the video for hyper ballad but anyway one of the other presents that my boyfriend got me was the first two seasons of wkrp in cincinnati on dvd i i don't remember wkrp in the same way that i remember golden girls or night court or cheers just shows that i got to watch a lot in syndication as well so I know every word to every episode and it does say something about my specific age that if you say Howard Hessman to me my immediate thought is head of the class right before WKRP that's just a very specific age group that falls into but I definitely remember watching it I must have the, the first crush I ever had on anyone was when I was three and I had a big crush on Gary Sandy who plays Andy Travis you know but I I love this show. All of Herb's jackets and Venus's entire outfits, so many of them unitards. It's wonderful. Jennifer's platinum hair, Les's moving bandages with every show, Bailey's not Jenniferness and Johnny Fever's all-around painful existence, even as he is doing what he most loves doing. I'm still in the first season of these DVDs, and, oh, the unwinnable song contest episode. Do you remember that one where they wanted to do a giveaway? But Johnny mistakenly said that the prize was $5,000 instead of $50. And they don't have that kind of money. And so they spliced together six songs, just snippets of six songs, thinking no one would be able to identify them. And people easily do. But I can swear one of those quick snippets is La Freak, But that's not one that's listed. They say YMCA, But I could swear it's Le Freak, it's driving me nuts! But regardless, this show feels like home. And one of my absolute favorite things about it is that it's really about a pretty unsuccessful radio station. They're not the best, not even close. And they're always being ridiculed for how bad they are or how weak they are or how their ratings aren't good. But we love them anyway. Now, Pete, my boyfriend, told me that he was going to get the show for me a few birthdays ago. But he didn't want to, because at that time I would have gotten a quote unquote subpar DVD. Because for as much as this show is about crazy characters and personalities swirling around one can do program director, Andy, I still love him. It's about a boring, struggling radio station that becomes a rock station in the pilot. And I don't know I don't know what kind of station they were before. It just says like a beautiful music station, and they play bits of choral music, maybe? Or just very slow, sedate music. They only really indicate that it was boring, quote-unquote, old people music. And they stated that it was the kind of music that was outdated 20 years ago, so outdated as of, at that time, 1958. So opera and Al Jolson, I have no idea. I have no idea. But then, in the pilot, Andy breezes in, and he puts that KISS poster up on the wall, and now we're awake. Now... We know we're naked, but it's so, so good. And rock station means rock music, and so that's what they play. Did you know, I didn't before I read this, but did you know that WKRP playing Heart of Glass, and not a big chunk of Heart of Glass either, just a little bit of it, but them playing that song helped the song become such a huge hit in the U.S. that Chrysalis, Blondie's label, presented WKRP's producers with a gold record of parallel lines. I know I am not the only person who watches a TV show and Wikipedia is it at the same time on my phone or my laptop. I absolutely know I'm not alone in that. Anyway, but there was a problem. The music that appeared in the show in the original run was able to appear because of a loophole in music licensing at that time where music used in a videotaped program as opposed to something that was filmed. And initially, I think this is just supposed to apply to variety shows when they said videotape program but that music could be obtained at a lower fee. So, Beatles, Beach Boys, yeah! Put all that shit in, why the hell not? But then, those licenses expired. And so, the show went off the air in 1982, even as quickly as, you know, eight years later, the early 90s, the syndicated show was already featuring replacement music. The worst music ever. Songs that are not slow ride, but are played in a way that evoke slow ride in your brain. And so now you are thinking about slow ride, but you are also that much more aware that you are definitely not listening to slow ride or Mercedes Benz or Yamo Be There, whatever. So then for the DVD initial release of WKRP in 2007, replacement music is what was on there. And what do you know? No one bought it because that is always terrible especially for a show about a rock radio station. The show isn't about music any more than another workplace comedy, Taxi, Wings, is about music. But music is an essential part of the production design. It's like, well, in this reissue of Little House on the Prairie, we couldn't clear wagons. So any shot with a wagon, we replaced with a picture of an apple wearing a cowboy hat. No, no. But then there's Shout Factory. When I saw that it was Shout Factory that released this current DVD collection, the one that I got with more of the music in it, I immediately was like, oh, okay, same as Freaks and Geeks. And I, I had read something, I think it was in the DVD notes of Freaks and Geeks, where Paul Feig said they were not going to release Freaks and Geeks on DVD under any circumstances until they were able to obtain each and every song that was used in the original run, no exceptions. And that is so so smart because companies have been so quick in the last 10 or so years to release older TV shows on DVD to just get them out there and cash in quick on people's Nostalgia Jones but doing so without securing the rights to the original music just thinking it'll be fine and so what if the song isn't playing under this scene it's the scene that counts no they're wrong it does matter it does count replacement music it's usually ugly And it's distracting, and it completely destroys not only the scene that you're watching on this DVD collection, because yeah, you're awesome and you still buy DVDs, but it ruins the memory that you had of seeing this on TV the first time if you got to do that. So good on Shout Factory for saving, to my knowledge, both Freaks and Geeks and WKRP in Cincinnati. For WKRP, they weren't able to get everything. They were able to get a good 80% of the original music, They said some stuff, it was just impossible to obtain the rights. So they didn't get Dogs by Pink Floyd, which is directly referenced in the scene that it's played in, so that kind of sucks. But also like No Surf in USA, Whip It, Sympathy for the Devil, You Light Up My Life, stuff like that, but a lot of other stuff. Over half of everything else, even Heart of Glass, even the Star Wars theme. And so that's the show I'm watching, the one where the right music is important enough to be there. Regardless of how long it took to secure the proper licenses and rights, I know very few people, if anyone at all, that this does not matter to. So if, P.S., someone could please point this out to Netflix, because watching The Wonder Years on there is like pulling out an ingrown toenail. I have to, but it hurts, and I'm biting a towel the entire time. They use Queen of the Forest a lot in WKRP, and they use it as the first song that they played in the new rock format, but I don't think they ever used Cat Scratch Fever. For some reason, I don't know, I just keep picturing this song in that show, so that's why I had it gently guide you out of that last segment. All right, our story for this episode is from stage actor Matthew Trumbull, and it's his story of his personal memory of a man named Jimmy Hootmacher. Jimmy was the crazy old man of his town who, though, is rumored to be the Mr. Jimmy in the second verse of You Can't Always Get What You Want?
0: I went down to the Chelsea Drug Store to get your prescription filled. I was standing in
1: line with Mr. Jimmy. A oh, man, did he look pretty
0: ill? I remember the first time in my Excelsior, Minnesota childhood that I heard the Mick Jagger, Jimmy Hootmacher story about you can't always get what you want. It was the first legend that I ever heard about somebody that I know, and it was told to me at church. And my family uh, went to the Congregational Church of Excelsior on Sundays. I was 12 years old, and I was the only child in the church's handbell choir, which was otherwise composed entirely of elderly women. They were desperate for numbers, and, uh, you know, I could read sheet music, so, they, so they, pulled in, they pulled me in, and, you know, I already had a high tolerance for uh, the scorn of my peers. <laughs> uh, and, I mean, I didn't have to go to Sunday school, and the part about Bell Choir Sundays that I liked the best, though, was getting a glimpse of Jimmy Hootmacher, Mr. Jimmy. Mr. Jimmy terrified me. He lurked around the peripheries of my church in a, in a grimy suit, and he never came into the service, though he never sat in a pew. He would sit on a bench alone in the hallway, outside of the sanctuary doors, just muttering to himself and from my handbell choir position, I could see him out there during the services, lost in his old world in his own world. He was He was old and he was, he was heavy, and he was he was crazy, and he didn 't smell good and the church biddies you know in, in the bell choir would whisper that his old hangout Used to be Mount Calvary Lutheran Church on the other side of town, but he had been come. He had come to be seen there as as an undesirable, and they had threatened uh, him with the police. And the biddies liked this story because it, it made the Lutherans look bad. But I thought that maybe the Lutherans were actually onto something. In this small town, Mr. Jimmy was the one that I always imagined giving me poisoned candy on Halloween, or telling me that that my mom forgot to give him the password, but I should get in the van anyway. And during the service one morning, I I leaned over to Bonnie in Bell Choir, and I said, why is Mr. Jimmy crazy? And she said, oh, well, you know, he watched his sister burn alive in a house fire when he was your age. And then she fell back asleep. And she woke up a few minutes later, and she whispered, Mick Jagger was here in 1964, and he was at, you know, he was at a bacon drugstore there, and Jimmy was there, you know, and, and Jimmy was upset, and he, you know, he's talking to himself like he does, and Mick says, oh, hey, Jimmy, what's wrong? And Jimmy says, oh, well, you know, I really wanted a cherry soda, and, they're, you know, they don't have any cherry sodas. They're out, and Mick says, oh, yeah, I'm really sorry to hear that, uh, mate, but, um, <laughs> Maybe, t- you know, tomorrow will be better. And Jimmy says, well, you know, you can't always get what you want. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> Jimmy always said so. It's the, it's the second verse of the song. And then she said no more. It was time to play Yezu, Joy of Man's Desiring on the, on the bells. And when we were done, the sermon began to just drone on, and I watched Jimmy mutter to, to no one for a, a few minutes. And I, I thought, is this man really... Part of rock and roll history. <laughs> he didn't appear to be aware of it, you know. In 1964, he would have been a young man in a Bacon Drugstore, muttering to himself even then, and that—that that I believed. But everything else seemed improbable. I went to Bacon Drugstore once a week to buy Jolly Ranchers and baseball cards, and they didn't sell sodas. And there was certainly no plaque there, you know, that said, "You are standing on the spot." where Mick Jagger, biggest rock star of all time, had a major moment of inspiration for you can't always get what you want back when we sold cherry sodas. So I thought about the second, the second verse of the song. These, these, these are the, uh, the lyrics. I went down to the Chelsea drugstore to get your prescription filled. I was standing in line with Mr. Jimmy. And man, did he look pretty ill. We decided that we would have a soda, my favorite flavor, cherry red. I sung my song to Mr. Jimmy, and he said one word to me, and that was dead. So the song, you know, is... is one of the most classic uh, rock anthems ever written. Every time that it played in town after that Sunday, I suddenly became aware of a phenomenon. People would quietly waggle their eyebrows at each other when the second verse played, like, ah, it's our song. <laughs> Jimmy's song is our song. This one's written for us. But the drugstore in the verse, it's not Begging Drugstore, it's a, it's a drugstore in Chelsea. And if Jimmy Hootmacher was Mr. Jimmy, I thought in the song, wouldn't he, make, wouldn't he be able to get some money out of that? <laughs> Unless he's, he's a muttering, homeless-looking millionaire. Everything about him was a mystery. And the mystery of the Mick Jimmy incident had a lead-in that Bonnie skipped. And I've always liked it because it embraces the Minnesotan principle that wonderful things can result from humiliation. <laughs> It's a mind-boggling fact, but the Rolling Stones had come to Excelsior, and uh, it's something that they've regretted their entire careers. (laughs) Uh, I may have been a 12-year-old in in handbell choir, but that bit of rock trivia was 100% at my fingertips because uh, for no other reason than it just amazed me that Excelsior had once been fun. (laughs) The town had a full-fledged amusement park on the lake and a 2,000 seat concert hall there called Big Reggie's Dance Land. And Jimmy, Jimmy worked backstage. And Big Reggie booked this completely unknown band into Excelsior called the Rolling Stones. 268 people showed up. And uh, they expected uh, all British bands would sound like the Beatles. And when the Stones didn't, they started booing, and eggs and tomatoes were thrown, uh, as is the Minnesotan ag- agricultural way. <laughs> It's a proud disaster in town history, because before the Stones could hightail it out of town, Mick Jagger needed to go to Bacon Drugstore to get a prescription filled, as the story goes. And there was this friend Mr. Jimmy from backstage with his cherry soda problem, and a classic song was, was born, so they say. If that really happened, I thought as I played my way through the final bell choir piece of the service, and we were getting to the point in the morning where I'd have to walk out of the sanctuary past Jimmy on his bench, and I would always scurry past him, afraid that one day he would lock his predatory eyes on me and pounce on me and end my life. <laughs> and the service ended, and I, I processed out of the sanctuary with the rest of the old handbell choir women, trying to hide my, my little self in the midst of all their beige choir robes. And I bent my head down and I shuffled my penny loafers as fast as they would go. And then I felt it, not on my shoulder. He grabbed my hand and it was surprisingly soft. And he tugged gently and I was no inches from his face. And his eyes were watery and they were in total focus and he wasn't muttering at all. What's your name? He said, is this a riddle? I thought. Monsters always ask riddles. Matthew, I cleverly retorted. And he said nothing to this, but he didn't look away. Ask him, I yelled in my thoughts. This is the moment, just ask him. Is it true about you and Mick Jagger? Are you truly a magical forgotten legend, or is everyone a liar? Make me the innocent child to whom you finally reveal all. I was too scared to say any of this. And a long moment of silence passed, and I was about to finally managed the words, well, bye, when he patted my hand and he said, you're a good boy, I like your music. And he leaned back and returned to whatever world he was muttering at. And I murmured, thank you, but he didn't hear me and I never heard him utter one more intelligible sentence in my life. And something about Jimmy holding my hand in that moment and manifesting in reality as a kind, semi-lucid, sad old man, and not the psychotic ogre of my imagination, made me um, grow up a little. I suddenly got it why people in this church never dug that far into the veracity of the Mick Jagger story and why the church offered him a, a, a haven to sit and mentally be somewhere else. Jimmy's mystery made him special. It was worth protecting. Which life details were fact, which were shaky, was insignificant compared to the higher belief that mystery was to be respected, that greater and more satisfying truths could be held in that respect than mere accuracy would ever support, and that those who carried such mysteries as humbly as Jimmy must have been specially chosen to do so. Jimmy was a man who didn't always get what he wanted, but that day I finally understood why this community felt it was their calling to make sure that he got what he needs. Thanks very much. (laughs)
1: Yes, Matthew Trumbull. You know, I don't know that my hometown had a crazy old eccentric, although I'm I'm saying that and now hoping that it's not like when you say, I don't think there's a black sheep in my family, but when you say that you're actually the black sheep, maybe me saying I don't think my hometown had a crazy old eccentric means it was me now because I wasn't old when I lived there. So maybe that means it was my dad. And that's it. That's our episode for this go-round. This has been the Soundtrack Series. And hey, if you are in or near New York City this coming Saturday, May 2nd, come on out to QED Astoria for this that you've been listening to only live with the likes of Christian Finnegan, Brian Silliman, Guy Branham, and Brian Kennedy. Stories about songs by Boys to Men, Whitney Houston, The Spice Girls, and from the Lay Miz soundtrack. I do know how to put on a show. As always, you can find us on Twitter, on Facebook iTunes, Stitcher, or right where you found us. And hey, if you have a second and you're feeling generous, give us a rating on iTunes. Or like I always say, just reach out to say hi. I record this show in my studio, aka a closet with egg foam on the wall. So I'm sure you know that I would love to hear from you from outside of this padded closet. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Thanks for listening.